We were asked to go around the room and talk about our race slash culture. The hired facilitators said, any white person who displays discomfort or distress when asked to discuss their race is not actually feeling distress. What they're exhibiting is a power play, and that is white fragility. Today, I sit down with Jody Shaw, who has become an influential figure in the growing movement opposing training based on critical race theory in academia and beyond. She made waves when she started speaking out in 2019 about the increasing illiberalism she saw at her then employer and alma mater, Smith College. Because it takes a while to build the conviction and to understand that there's nothing actually wrong with you. The feeling that something's not right is because something isn't right. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest-rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Jody Shah, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, so first of all, congratulations on being a hero of intellectual freedom, uh, an award given to you by ACTA. I think you're the only non-academic to have won this award. Dorian Abbott, Joshua Katz are co-winners with you. Um, so congratulations. Thank you. Why don't we kind of go back to the, to the beginnings where you, you know, stuck your head out, so to speak. Right. And then everybody noticed. I, I want to make sure everybody kind of knows the backstory here. So you're, of course, this is at Smith College and you actually, you did your undergraduate studies at Smith College yep. um, and, and loved it. So yeah. why, don't, why don't we start there and, and bring us up to the present? So I, yes, it is true. I studied at Smith College and I graduated with my BA in anthropology in 1993 and I loved it. I loved Smith. I, it was my number one choice. I was elated to get in, and I learned a lot there. And then I left Smith and lived all over the country. I lived in Portland, Oregon for a little while, and it lived in New Mexico. And then I spent most of my adult life in Brooklyn, New York. And I was a musician, very important to say. <laughs> so I was living a, a very much a hand-to-mouth existence for many years, and I was happy with that because I was doing something I loved. And then I got married and had children. And then I realized very quickly that I was going to have to get a job and have some regular hours. So I became a librarian. And then my marriage ended. And it was, it's very tough living in the city with children if you don't have a lot of money. And so I thought, well, where could we go? Where could I convince my ex to move to with our kids that where I'm still going to have some 
where it's still going to be a stimulating environment. And I remembered Northampton and Smith. Smith is a, you have to understand it's a small town, so Smith is, the town is heavily influenced by Smith. I remembered Northampton as this just very, very liberal, lefty, anything goes, free speech kind of place. And I'd always felt very comfortable there. So I thought, well, let's, let's go back to Northampton and raise our kids there. So that's what brought me back to Northampton. And it had always been kind of a dream of mine, you know, if, well, if I have to have a job, it would be great to have a job at Smith. So I was really excited to get a job at Smith as a temporary librarian. And I started working there and there was something, it felt different. It felt, you know, it wasn't just about the free speech. There was something that felt more corporate about Smith. And I remember when I was a student there, I felt, it felt like a real community. It felt like the faculty and the students um, were, there's just something more cohesive and friendly about it. And it didn't feel the same when I went back, but I thought, well, I'm in a different role. I was a staff member. I thought maybe this is how it feels. And so I began my job with much gusto. And uh, I did notice, however, there were a lot of discussions about whiteness and white privilege and systemic racism. I hadn't been in academia for a long time, so all of these things, I mean, I'd been performing on the subway platforms. These, these kinds of discussions were pretty foreign to me, and I had no, no reason not to believe that they were necessary. I was being told this is necessary, this is part of uh, fighting injustice, this is part of achieving social justice. And I thought, well, that sounds good. Social justice sounds good. I think there's few people who would hear that phrase not knowing what it is and think that it was a bad thing. So I went along with this and participated in it. And during this first year, I was tasked with giving an orientation to 600 incoming first year students. And I was told I have to do something wild and crazy. And so I thought, what's the best way to transmit a lot of otherwise very boring information to a bunch of tired 18-year-olds. I thought, well, of course, a rap. <laughs> and I had my musical background, and so I pitched this idea, and it was accepted. And so I worked on this rap over that summer. This was now summer of 2018. In the middle of that summer, towards the end, July 31st, there was an incident on campus with a student, a black student, accused a white custodian of engaging in racially motivated behavior against her because he called campus police. And that was really all I heard. And that's, as far as I can tell, all anybody really knew about it. The student posted a, made a Facebook post about it and it went viral about this m massive injustice had occurred because she was black. My name is Ubu Kenyute and I'm an undergraduate student at Smith College. On July 31st, while I was eating lunch in a common space, a Smith College employee called the police on me because I seemed out of place. I was said to be demonstrating suspicious behavior. Some might say this wasn't such a big deal because I wasn't touched or harmed or physically harmed, I should say, during this incident. But I want people to understand the underlying message that this caller sent by calling the police on a student for eating lunch and simply trying to enjoy a break. 
And I thought at the time, wow, that's terrible. You know, like, I can't believe it. And I, I didn't even bother to look into the situation that much. And neither did Smith, by the way. They immediately began apologizing to the student publicly, a lot of profuse apologizing, announcing they were going to embark on a campaign of new initiatives to fight the systemic racism and the bias and mandatory anti-bias trainings for employees and all that kind of stuff. And they did this before they even began an investigation into the incident. And so this was supporting my own belief that yes, this is a horrible thing because I had placed my trust in this institution, my alma mater, my employer. I thought, well, surely they know what they're doing. Surely this is a problem and um, we need to do better and we need to implement all these things. It was just an assumption. And then a month later after this incident happened, when I was about to do this orientation presentation to 600 first year students, my supervisor approached me, it was the, less than a week before the event, and I cannot emphasize enough how anyone who's done event planning knows how hard it is to organize an event for 600 people, and I was the lead person. So it wasn't just my own presentation, it was everything. So a week before the event, he approached me and he said, you can't do the rap. And I said, why not? And he said, because you're white. And then he went on to document this in an email. He said, we, we, the, the presentation of a rap by white staff can be seen as culturally insensitive. I don't know if I'm getting the quote exactly right, but that's pretty much what he said. And I asked him, I said, well, if I was a person of color, could I do it? And I didn't specify what color. And he just said yes. And so that was it. There was no rap. And cut, I won't get into the nitty-gritty um, of the, the library job because I ended up, I was up for a full-time position, but I ended up leaving. There's a lot of details that I won't get into, but I ended up leaving and taking a job in the residence life department, which is part of the administration, granted like a lower part of the administration. but And I took a job that was a big pay cut, lesser responsibilities, but much more material. As a librarian, I was doing more teaching. I was on the academic side, but I thought, well, if I move to the staff side, where I'm helping students navigate the more material realm of their existence as Smith, like their physical well-being, the, the dormitories, ID cards, fixing locks, uh, changing light bulbs, things like that. I thought, surely I can avoid all of this um, discussion about race and, and I won't have to talk about my white privilege and my white, white fragility. And I think, I think it's important to note here that when I was told I couldn't do the rap, something that I don't talk about is that I was very confused because here we had this incident on campus um, and everybody was very upset about it. It was a, a, a racial incident. And here I had just been told that because you're a white person, you can't do this professional thing that you wanted to do, which would have perhaps really made you a lot very competitive for this full-time job you were up for. I'm not getting too convoluted. And so I was very confused. I was like, well, wait a minute. That sounds like racial discrimination. <laughs> but because I was hearing this messaging that you cannot be discriminated against if you're white, that uh, racism is prejudice plus power and um, a, coming at you. And because I'm a white person, I have power and therefore I cannot be discriminated against. I, I was in this like a lot of emotional turmoil about it. I was very confused. I was like, maybe I should report this, but then maybe people are going to think I'm racist because I think I've been discriminated against and that's impossible. So there was a lot going on. And I also thought if I reported it, I would never get a job at Smith again, ever. So that was a reality. So I left and I 
took this other job that I thought I would kind of lay low and be out of this kind of discourse. And boy, was I wrong. I went to the residence life department and I didn't know this, but residence life departments in general are staffed with people who have received their master's degrees in higher education, which is now uh, very much saturated with the social justice ideology stuff, that this is their job and they have to teach these things to students. And it's kind of like a they had a co-curriculum that went along with the academic curriculum teaching students about social justice. And it was made clear to me pretty early on that part of my job was I was going to have to talk about uh, my fixed characteristics, like race and gender. And I was not happy about this. And I was, and also at the time I was still figuring this out, like, it, what is, and so I started really taking a deep dive into what do these terms mean? What does social justice mean? What does equity mean? What does diversity mean? And time went on and a lot of things happened on campus. Um, that incident involved two, two innocently accused fa um, staff members who suffered as a result. One left and never came back. Two more people were fired or terminated amicably for related reasons. And I was watching all this from my little perch in residence life and started, that's when I really started questioning this ideology a lot more and started doing more research and information. It's very hard when everyone around you is saying one thing and you're having this feeling that something's not right. So I really started to try to validate that feeling um, and find out, or find out why I was having it. And fall of 2019, I was mandated to attend a professional development training. And I asked, I remember asking, are we going to need to discuss our race at this training? And I was told yes. And so I went to my supervisor privately and I said, by then I had decided that I, you know, my, my logic was you're not supposed to ask about somebody's race at a job interview. So why am I being asked to do it as a continued condition of my employment? So I went to my supervisor and I said, I'm not comfortable discussing my race at work. And she said, no problem, just say that when you go to the workshop. So I went to the workshop and lo and behold, we were asked to go around the room and talk about our race slash culture in the context of our childhood, something like that. So now we have two things I'm not comfortable talking about at work. So everyone went around the room and said what they said and it got to me and I said, I'm not comfortable discussing my race at work. And the, the hired facilitators said, any white person who is displays discomfort or distress when asked to discuss their race is not actually feeling distress. What they're exhibiting is a power play, and that is, a, that is white fragility. So I was humiliated in front of my colleagues, and I actually felt the humiliation. And it, was, uh, I, it felt like, I don't know, like my heart stopped. I never dreamed that that would be the response. I thought maybe people would just be kind of irked and move on, but that didn't happen. I was singled out for my skin color and I, was, I, I, I felt shame. And that was when I decided uh, I'm gonna have to say something about this because now I was in a position where <laughs> I couldn't just go along and keep my head down and my mouth shut. Like now you can't just not say something. Now, if you don't say something, it will be, could be construed as an act of aggression, by just simply by remaining silent, that that's 
a symptom of white fragility and that you don't want to talk about your race. So I felt like, well, I'm being, my, my hand's being forced here. I'm going to have to do something. So that's when I began the process of filing an internal complaint. And I exhausted all my remedies at Smith. I filed, I talked to my supervisors. I filed an internal, a very lengthy internal complaint. I sent emails to administrators. I was passed off amongst administrators um, when I started asking questions, you know, what do these words mean? What does social justice mean? And there was not, I believe it was a disingenuous investigation that was conducted. It was delayed, delayed, delayed. And then I found out I was, and then, so a, a, a couple weeks or within a week of when I filed the internal complaint, George Floyd died. And so Smith, much of his, it had done after the July 31st, 2018 incident with the student, went into hyperdrive. We're going to be doing a lot more workshops, generating justice, social justice. Um, I, I was invited to white-only staff um, events where we could talk about supporting our colleagues. I was uh, sent emails by the president. She sent emails to everybody saying, you know, we're going to celebrate Juneteenth, and this is a day for our colleagues of color to rest and rejuvenate and our white um, colleagues to educate themselves, uh, something like that. So that summer was just a barrage, and this was right after I filed a complaint. I thought, gee, you know, I don't think they're taking my complaint seriously. <laughs> so, I, but I, I kept going, and then when I was told I was going to have to, and you have to remember, I put this in context, that we're in the middle of a pandemic, and the, the college had just informed the staff, or all of us, that there were going to be furloughs. And they did this in the same breath, and by the same breath I mean the same period of time, that they announced there, there were going to be furloughs because there, we, there was a financial shortfall. They also said, and we're also going to be putting a lot of energy and resources into this thing called racial justice at Smith. And we're going to be doing all these initiatives. So I thought, wow, well, they're putting money in that. And meanwhile, people are getting furloughed. After what I had seen at Smith, the, the hostile environment, this was just like adding more fuel to this, not more fuel, it was a, it's a wound. And they were, they, they were like stabbing the wound. So finally, I was waiting for this investigation to be completed, and it kept getting delayed and delayed. And that summer, I was informed I would have to start going to discussions about the racial justice at Smith stuff and this, another discussion about that. And I thought, gee, I'm going to go to this discussion, and I'm not going to say anything. Am I going to be construed as racist? Is this? It, it, it was really, really stressful, and I decided they're not taking me seriously. I'm using the internal channels and they're not, they're not responding. And so I thought, what can I do? This regular person who has really no power and I don't have a PhD. I'm not a faculty member. I'm, I'm a staff member. What can I do to get Smith to respond? How can I get them to pay attention to what I see as a real problem here? Not just for me, but for all the staff. And I, I thought, well, um, I don't think they like publicity very much. So I thought, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to make a video. So that's what I did. <laughs> I made a video, I made a YouTube video, and I had no idea what would happen with it. This is what I'm asking of Smith College. I ask that Smith College stop reducing my personhood to a racial category. Stop telling me what I must think and feel about myself because... I feel like you do that a lot. I know you do that a lot, and I, I need you to stop doing that. I pu published it, 
And then I sat on the couch watching a show with my kids and checking my phone, and it was like, okay, oh, a thousand views. Okay, oh, oh my God, ten thousand views. So that's when I knew, okay, this is going to be, this is it. They're, they're probably going to pay attention now, and they did. So what happened next? So, so what happened next was I went to work the next day, and uh, not everybody had seen the video yet, and so I went about my business, and then the next day. The president released a letter on the website to everybody, and I forget what the letter was called, but it was about my video. And she said, "A staff member on X date released a video, and she characterized it as a critique of our social justice initiatives, or something like that, a critique of our diversity and equity initiatives, or something like that." And, and it wasn't really a critique of the initiatives. It was actually I was very specific about what you're asking me to do. I wasn't I wasn't critiquing your theory or <laughs> what you think about social justice. I was these are things that you were doing to me. So she didn't address that. She did say um, that this individual has a right to do this under the there's a federal act that protects employees um, who want to advocate for a better working environment. And I'd mentioned that in my video that that's what I was doing. And that was kind of, I interpreted that as her way of saying, we would fire her, but <laughs> we want you to know, for all of you people who are writing to us, asking us to fire her, that we can't. So I made a video in response to her letter. Even, even at that point, it felt like you know she had written me off. And it also, I also noticed at the end of the letter, because in my video I was very specific, I, I said something about, don't ask me to disempower students of color by sending them the message that they are somehow uh, so oppressed or don't have the ability, same abilities as their white counterparts and can't achieve the same thing as their white counterparts. Don't ask me to do that to them. That's extremely disempowering rhetoric. And because I, I think this ideology is disempowering to anyone of any skin color. And so I noticed at the end of her letter, she said, after she had said all this stuff about the video, we don't stand by this, we stand by our initiatives. At the end she said, and to our students of color, we want you to know that we, are, we stand with you or something like that. And I thought, well, there it is. There's that condescending thing as if a student who's not white is gonna watch my video and somehow they, you, you, we know you can't handle this. You can't handle seeing somebody talking honestly about something in a very polite, respectful way, I might add, that there's that condescension there. She was, she was doing the very thing that I asked her not to try to make me do, because I think that's disempowering. So she exhibited the behavior in her letter. So I made a, respond, a responding video to her. I said, I'm gonna take this as a dialogue, because <laughs> I'd never had it, she'd never attempted to have a dialogue with me. And I responded to her letter, and then she sent a letter um, of course, by now I was in touch with a lot of people at Smith I'd never been in touch with before who'd written to me privately, and some faculty sent me um, an email. Now, they were writing to you saying, I agree, but I'm not ready to say so publicly, or I support you, yes. or this kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was good. I felt supported, and I understood why they didn't want to say anything, but I, I, wish, I wish they did. Some of them did. Some of them spoke to the New York Times. So she sent an email out to the faculty 
from through the provost that basically told them, you know, hold the party line. If you get any media requests, send them this way, and um, we don't want you to respond um, on anything, on any of your professional accounts. Like, please don't respond on your own. Something like that. Like, we're gonna we're gonna maintain a unified front here. That was my interpretation of it. So then, you know, as expected, there was retaliation. <laughs> I. Yeah, I, I mean, I filed a complaint. It's all, I filed a federal, I ended up filing a federal lawsuit. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But yeah, there was retaliation and I was eventually, and you know, throughout all this, I was forwarding emails to myself from my account, from my work account to my private account that had to do with my complaint because this was documentation. As is, I believe, my right, because I have a legal action against the college. And they put me under investigation for this. They said, you've compromised uh, the safety or the security of student information and college information, something like that. And therefore, we're putting you under investigation. And so it was obviously pretextual. And so I was put on leave with pay. So that was good. Um, at my furlough, I was also furloughed. I didn't mention that. I was the only one in my department to get, I was half-time furloughed. And then they approached me and said, we would like to uh, resolve this amicably. And at that point, um, I said, well, I would like you to apologize to the staff you've hurt, because I didn't get into it, but a lot of staff have been hurt at Smith since that incident that, that summer. And I would like you to stop this programming, this kind of programming stuff, because I believe it's harmful. And they said, absolutely not. And then there were some more negotiations, and which I won't get into. But in the end, I, I remember agonizing in front of my wood stove. It was the middle of winter. And I thought, mm, you know, I could take a settlement and be okay. But there's strings attached. There were strings attached, right? Well, you, can't, you can't talk about us anymore, <laughs> basically. But yeah. Um, or I could continue to, along this path. And I, in the end, I decided, I thought I would regret taking a settlement. And I also decided, it was a base, I made a video about it, it's a freedom versus comfort. I, I had to distill it down, okay, what are these, what are the two things? I didn't make a pros and cons list, it's like freedom on one side, comfort on the other. For Most of us have had, been lucky enough to have both for the most part. And now I was faced with a decision and I thought, well, I'm, I, I just can't, I, I have to choose freedom. I just can't give up my freedom. And I had no idea what would happen. And so they said, okay, well, I guess you can come back to work then. <laughs> but by then the environment was so hostile. We were getting emails, fire Jody Shaw, uh, Smith can't support Jody Shaw, and my colleagues had I had been informed that my colleagues were very uncomfortable with what I had done, and it was a very hostile. If it was hostile before, it was very hostile now to me, and I decided that there was simply no way I could continue to work there, and so it was a constructive dismissal in my mind. So I, I left, and you know, and this is difficult because you have two boys, right? Yeah. Um, it's not, you're not just thinking about yourself. Um, how, and how is it in the family, this whole rigmarole? 
thanks for asking that. I don't really talk about that a lot. Well, I mean, that, that obviously factored into my decisions. And if I didn't have a family and I happened to have still moved up there and work at Smith, I, and this stuff started happening, I would have been like, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm just going to go move somewhere else and get a job somewhere else. But I did have a family, so I had to stay. And then when I ended up leaving, that was, that was a big leap, having a family. I didn't know what would happen. I thought maybe I'll do snow removal. I was thinking about, you know, very, like, even more removed from all of this stuff, tasks, very physical things. But l- luckily, um, I'm okay. And, but, but on my family, you know, it, it's been hard on my kids. They've, they've gone without the full focus and attention of their mother for over two years now. This has kind of taken over my life. And it's distracting. And we live in a small town. I, I know it's, it's had an impact on their social life. Mm-hmm. And that, when I hear them say that, when I hear like the kids at their school were watching a video of mine or something, and it makes me feel bad. It makes me feel bad and it does make me question, did I do the right thing? You can never anticipate everything. I did think about all this before I made the first video. I thought it long and hard. I thought, this will impact my family. How will it impact? This will impact me. Will people be coming to my house, throwing bricks at it? Uh, how, how am I going to deal with online harassment? I had to really think through all of the things that might happen. And so I did go into it knowing it was most likely going to impact my children and that we do live in a small town. Um, it hasn't been as bad for me as I thought it would be because since most of the harassment's online, um, but my kids, yeah, I, I just, but I try to comfort myself by telling myself that either my kids could have seen me go along with this and watch because it was eating me, it was eating me alive and, and watch that, or they could watch me tell the truth and be honest and take a risk and, and lose something in the process. And hopefully some of that will sink in. And when they're older, some of that's inside of them and that they can grow up and take, take some strength from that, knowing that their mother didn't just back down because this affects them in the end. And, and really that, that was in there too. I didn't mention that, that I don't want my kids to inhabit a future in which they're being told that they're bad because of their skin color or their gender, that they're, they're just bad. That's, that's, if you boil it down, that's pretty much what it is, or that's the feeling you get. You feel like you're bad. And I didn't want my kids feeling that. You know, I want them to feel bad if they do something bad, like if their behavior is bad, that's an appropriate response, but not feeling bad because of the fixed characteristics that they were born with. That's wrong. You know, I think when this history is written, um, I think your kids will have something to be very proud of. You, you know, you describe this as a kind of spiritual quest, and I thought that was very interesting, as opposed to a material quest. Well, my, this is where my background comes in as a musician playing on the subway. When people ask me what that was like, my response is it was one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had. There's something extremely honest about it. 
And it's not like you go to perform in it. When you go to perform in a club, people show up, they pay their admission, they sit down, you sing a song, they clap. But on the subway, you're performing, people only respond if they respond. There's no pretense. They're not like being polite. They, they're just like, you know, they, they either look at you or they don't. And so it's honest. If somebody approaches you and puts a dollar in your basket or looks at you or has a tear in their eye, it's, it's honest, it's real. And, and what's more is that this, re I was noticing I was getting this response from people I'd never seen before, never met, didn't even speak the same language as me, of all different races, ethnicities, religions, socioeconomic backgrounds, you name it. And that was a, a beautiful, beautiful experience. And so that, that, those kinds of, I guess, I don't want to use the word seeker, but I, I do have a hunger in me for meaning. I think most of us do. And that's how I, that was my particular, how I went after it, I guess, was through my music and through the connection with the audience. So... I guess that's, if somebody had asked you my value, that's a value of mine, is living my life in a manner so that I can make meaning out of it. And the spiritual experience is just very, very important to me. And so I realized at Smith that that was more important to me than having the paycheck. I, ha I had to decide, this was, it was the freedom comfort thing, the freedom to pursue a spiritual quest. I, I, I wanted that. And then I learned quickly that there, there was something very spiritual about it when I publicly resigned and kind of like what happened on the subway, thousands of people sent me emails and said, I know how you feel. It, something in that video moved them and something in my resignation moved them so that they could tell their story to me it felt important to me. It also felt like a huge responsibility, you know, and that I couldn't respond to everybody. And I, I felt, oh gosh, you know, I want to help all these people. But um, why did you feel this sense of responsibility? What what was the responsibility for exactly? Because I knew how it felt. Because people would write to me and say, "I'm working in this environment," and it was all in different kinds of fields and discipline. Not it wasn't just people working in colleges. Uh, it was doctors and psychotherapists and lawyers, people from all over. And they would say, I haven't told anybody else this. It was like there was nobody else in their immediate proximity that they could talk to. And they had been harboring this feeling that something was not right, something was not right. And they felt like they were the only one mm. kind of questioning, is there something wrong with me that I feel this way? And nobody else seems to feel that way. And I'll look, here's somebody who has said the words, the same things that I feel. And so they would reach out to me and I know how it feels to be the only person or feel like you believe you're the only person. Like all evidence tells you you're the only person that's having an issue here that seems to be upset by this. So it felt, I felt like I had a responsibility to, to help them in some way. That is in part why I kept making videos, like walking through my process, because that was the, the only thing I could really do adequately and fully, was to keep making videos, just being really honest about what was going on in my head so that people could watch them, because there was just simply no way I could write back 
to every individual person and start talking with them. I tried that for a while and it was very exhausting and meeting with people and having Zoom sessions and trying to help them suss out what was going on. But it was unsustainable. But these also, these videos, they weren't off the cuff. Like that sense I get is these were like, you really thought about each one before you knocked it out, right? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would, um, yeah, so some of them are edited and some of them aren't. Yeah, I would, I would think through, it's more like I didn't say, I want to make a video today. What am I going to talk about? It was more another thing would come to me and I'd start thinking about it and say, yeah, I think I should make a video about this, like outlining my process about how I'm thinking about this. So you, you, you became a kind of a voice for all these people who, well, at least at the time, kind of were voiceless, right? Or just, or just speak, started speaking to you. And you were kind of, you became a kind of, <laughs> well, I don't even know the right term, but some, some kind of, you know, and, and it offered an expression of collective angst or concern or. Um, yeah, in a very non-angry way, more, I think the fact that I mentioned in the first video, I think I say, and I'm a lifelong liberal. I think that that's important because it gave other liberals or left people, people who would always associate themselves on the left, let's put it that way, they could look at me and say, ah, oh, because there were already a lot of people on the right talking about this. Mm. But to see another person like me in my tribe, you know, like the way we categorize, talking about this, like it was almost like it gave them permission to be like, ah, oh, yes, this is wrong. Here's this other liberal saying it. So I think that was part of it, why it kind of was a lightning rod thing. It was, I was like the, you know, the, gateway, the gateway drug to... <laughs> so I, you know, this, is, this is now kind of coming circle to maybe why you're a hero of intellectual freedom. Has there been some number of people that reached out to you that have you know, subsequently made, you know, difficult decisions like you did because of your interaction. Yes, and that is very gratifying to me. Um, there, yeah, it's it's been nice. I just had somebody write to me last night. I was reaching out, starting to get active again on social media. I'd taken a, a break for a while, and I remember talking to her about a year ago, I think, on the phone. She was in this terrible situation, similar situation, and she's now filed a complaint with her state office of civil rights. And she had, she had just gone from only talking to me to now she's filed a public complaint. And I was, it felt really good. And then another person, something I would tell people is you need to find one other person. I know I'm, but you need to find another person in, preferably in the same environment that you're in, at your job or at the school or wherever this is happening. Just one other person. And I know it's hard and it seems scary, but you suss people out. And then once that dam breaks and you, you start talking to each other, that it, it, it just, just one other person can have such an impact. And so there's somebody else who, she, she came back and she told me, I remember when you said that, and I went out and I found one other person, and now she has a really well-functioning organization in Canada that she started for mm. K-12 through education and started with finding one other person. So 
one other person. That's all it takes. So yeah, that, that's gratifying. I feel like I have helped in some ways. So no, and this is, you, you've said this before, and I can't remember if it was to me or I saw it, it's the materials I was reviewing earlier, but that the important thing is to create, to somehow in this bizarre cultural reality that we're facing today is to somehow have these support systems exist for people pre them making the decision right to, yes. to to talk right yes yeah yes somebody a, a journalist asked me what would you say to somebody who's just stood up um how would you support them or something like that and my response was i think there's actually more support needed before that happens because right. it takes a while to build the conviction and to understand that there's nothing actually wrong with you, that this feeling, you have the feeling that something's not right is because something isn't right. And you have a right and you can stand up and, and say something about it. And so, I mean, a lot, a lot of people, they, they accidentally do something and then they find out. But somebody for somebody who decides to stand up, it, it takes a long time to get to that point of understanding that not only that you're not wrong, but that this stuff is wrong. And two, that to assess your resources, if you will, once you've decided you want to take action, what kind of action do I want to take? And how am I going to handle the fallout? And kind of get your ducks in a row first. So that's, I think, when the most support is needed. Because if people, if people don't even know if they're still confused about social justice and am I doing the right thing and am I a bad person for questioning this, then they're, they're no, that's, you're not even close to being able to withstand standing up and, and taking action to prepare yourself. Well, if there's one thing that the last two years have taught me, um, it's how incredibly strong the so social pressure or social influence or something like that is on humans by other humans right it's i mean it's yeah. like i just I, <laughs> I i i frankly did not understand this this is this has been a huge lesson for me you know uh, i want to kind of follow up a little bit on something you said in your acceptance speech um and it it has to do with how you understand the stories we tell, the importance or the value or the role of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the world. And you make this distinction, you know, between stories that are ours and stories that come from outside and, and how that and how these stories impact our emotions. So I want, this is a very interesting perspective on Tell me about this. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, I was, I was going to receive this award, Heroes of Intellectual Freedom. So I was trying to think of what is intellectual freedom? What does that mean, really? So I started thinking about the intellect. And I started thinking about that the intellect is not a reliable narrator. That's what I decided. And that intellectual freedom is only a, really freedom if we have ownership over our intellectual process in the first place. So what I mean by that is, and, and, and something that's not discussed often is the realm of the emotions and the role that that plays in intellectual freedom. So I saw a bumper sticker one time, this just came to me 
before I was receiving the word, said, don't believe everything you think. And I think that's important to remember, something to remind ourselves. So when, I, when I'm talking about feelings, when I have a feeling, it's a, the, the feeling, it's basically alerting me something's going on. I don't know what it is because the feeling doesn't have a language. The feeling doesn't, it is in the thought process, just a, a, a basic feeling. It's not good or bad, but it alerts, it calls attention to our intellect. It kind of says, hey, there's something interesting happening over here. Ooh, something doesn't feel good. Come check this out. And then our intellect comes in and just, it acts as a translator and interprets that feeling and, and tells us what's going on. Oh yeah, I'm feeling jealous. Why? And then we explain that feeling or we assign meaning to it. And sometimes the intellect gets it right and sometimes it doesn't. In the case of this ideology, at Smith, I had a feeling something felt bad about this ideology. And I was told, my, my, my intellect was fooled because my intellect was convinced by the learned uh, faculty and administrators at Smith that the reason I was having this doubtful feeling that something was off was an evidence of implicit racial bias. That my feeling of, of something not quite right with this ideology was actually evidence of the ideology itself. And so my intellect was fooled and I went along for a while trying to suppress the feeling therefore. After a long time of wrangling with my own mind and seeking outside sources, I came to understand that the reason I was having a bad feeling about this stuff was because this stuff was bad. <laughs> um, but before, prior to that, I thought the reason I'm having a bad feeling about this stuff is because I'm bad. That's basically what the ideology says. And so that's why we must be wary of the intellect. And that when our intellect interprets a feeling for us, we have to be sure, we're basically telling ourselves a story about that feeling and we need to make sure that the, that story came from us and not someone else, not Smith College. So Smith College, had I had effectively allowed an outside authority to hijack my intellect and interpret a feeling for me that was not in my best interest. And so I think many of us, this is not particular to this ideology, many of us have been telling ourselves stories that don't belong to us since birth. And that is culture plays an influence. Like you have these feelings because or who, who to love and how you should love and what's funny and what's isn't, what, what isn't. I mean, I think I've definitely had the experience where I, I find something funny. That's a feeling. I just laugh. Um, and then my intellect steps in and says, oh, no, 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 you're not supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> you're not supposed to laugh at that. You're not supposed to find that funny. And then I try to suppress the laughter. As a spiritual seeker, as an artist, as an anthropologist, as someone who's very curious about psychology and other people and myself, I've worked for a long time to try to examine the stories that my intellect tells me, which are oftentimes in response to an emotion I'm having, and tried to suss out did that story come from me? Or is that somebody else's? Did I just unconsciously adopt somebody else's interpretation there and try to push out what's not mine and develop my own story that works for me? 
And that process that I was already doing and that some of us have already been doing for a very, very long time, that is intellectual freedom or that's how you get to intellectual freedom. What I learned at Smith and what I learned in thinking about intellectual freedom is that freedom is not something that somebody grants to you or gives to you. It's, it's, it's something you do and it's something you practice over and over again until you get it right. And it's, it's a journey that starts at birth and goes until we die. That's freedom. And those of us who have been on this journey for a long time, we, we cherish the freedom because we had to work for it. It's not easy doing that stuff. And I think this, these past two years have really forced our hand here because I, the question that has been burning in my mind for a long time is why do some people stand up and others don't? And this answers that question for me, which is that some of us have been working on freedom for a long time and other people, others of us have not. And so now the time has come and you can't just suddenly go from zero to nothing. Some of us were already free or already working on freedom. And so when the time came, we were able to step up in a way we, we had already prepared for that moment. Maybe freedom is like a muscle, right? You have to kind of work it, right? To... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and, and, that, and that's interesting because there's all sorts of good, good analogies. The other piece, though, that's very interesting is, of course, you know, and I, and I remember doing this myself, right? Of course, we, we hear people give their perspectives on things, and sometimes you hear a really good one, and you're like, okay, I'm going to take that for myself, right? We make our choice to to bring in because we we find the idea intellectually attractive or you know there could be there could be many reasons but so the, then we make those things our own they come from outside as a kid we probably do it because it's our parents and we you know we, we look up to them yeah. but with this with woke ideology it's kind of it it sort of just demands that its story be the one that's accepted either you do it volitionally or it will be done against your <laughs> will it has that feeling is it's like that right that's that's and that's just interesting in this model that you've that you've described here. Um, yeah, well, it's almost like the woke ideology, if you don't do it, then that's proof of the ideology, right? Like if you don't participate, you're just proving this yeah. ideology. It's tautological, yes. That, yeah, it's that, tautological, that, that's, right. right. And it's a potentiated version of something we've been doing all our lives, like cultural influences, influences of, of teachers and adults or whatever as we're growing up. Yeah, this is like... So in some way, we've been preparing for this ideology. In some way, it's like we already have that tendency in it. But, but you're right. There's something a lot more demanding about this. And the consequences are not just loss of internal freedom, but actual material fallout. You will lose your job or you will be socially censored if you do not go along with this. So earlier, you mentioned this lawsuit that you filed against Smith. It's pretty fascinating because in an academic setting, typically we see, you know, lawsuits in relation to freedom of speech. But you're you're doing something a little bit different. You're kind of tackling the question of racial bias head on here. So tell tell me about this. 
Well, I think that has to do with the fact that I'm not, I'm not an academic and most academics in the academic environment have found their freedom of speech stifled in some way. And most academic settings have a freedom of speech policy and guarantee faculty, because we hear about a lot of faculty filing suits or complaints or speaking up. Um, they have policies guaranteeing that freedom of expression or freedom of speech, that's a tenant of most academic settings, that faculty will have this freedom. And that's often what we hear about fr from cases having to do with academia. My case is different because I am not alleging that my freedom of speech was trampled upon. I am alleging that I was discriminated against based on my skin color, that this is racial discrimination and a racially hostile environment, amongst other things. And so my case is not, while the former is a constitutional violation, freedom of speech, and a violation, I believe, of the policy of the college, too. One could say that if they state at the beginning, we're going to um, ensure your freedom of expression. My case is a Title VII civil rights complaint, and it's very different. It's an employment matter. I was not publishing work and had was canceled because they didn't like what I was saying. I was actually, what it boiled down to is adverse action was taken against me because I didn't say something they wanted me to say because I would not utter words that I thought were discriminatory against myself or others in some way. So it's a civil rights case and it's therefore, when this happens in, a, in other work environments, it's never, as far as I know, it's never going to be a freedom of speech issue unless it's like a governmental agency. It's, it's this kind of woke stuff is a civil rights violation. This is racial discrimination and this is a civil rights violation and it's not up until I mean, I'm sure there have been cases, but it's the only thing that makes this case unusual is two things. One, that I'm, I'm white, and so it's, it's referred to as reverse discrimination or reverse racism, which people, which woke ideology would tell us does not exist. But even, I want to point out, even the term reverse racism is not a legal term. That in and, in and of itself implies that there's something different about the racism committed against a certain skin color being, in this case, being white, that that's a different kind of racism than other kinds of racism. It's not. It's very simply racism. Racism is an adverse action taken against you in your employment because of your skin color, or you don't get a job because of your skin color, or anything else you can prove that happened to you because of your skin color. That's racism across the board. For, for some of the people that are watching this, it might be like a shocking thing to hear, frankly. Something that Eli pointed out is I'm, I'm still operating on the fundamentals of civil rights law. I believe, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, and I think the law agrees with me the way I interpret the law and many of us do, is that if you do something to somebody and say you have to do this or you have to do that in an employment setting because of your skin color, that constitutes you're singling somebody else out based on their race, and that constitutes racial discrimination or harassment or hostility, whatever it is. Smith College and increasingly other entities appear to be operating in a different realm, which is that um, that 
no longer applies. That if you are, that color is the basis upon which you can be singled out and told you must do this or that. And that is why, and you, and you need to believe that. And if you don't believe it, then you're bad. And if you don't go along with it, that we're probably going to fire you. Or although they do it in a, a sneaky way though, they don't come out and say we're firing you because you don't go along with this ideology. What usually happens is they try to find some other unrelated reason to, to fire you or put you under investigation. But they're operating on a whole different set of assumptions now, this woke ideology. That's a, it's a whole nother animal. And so this case really is important. And anyone else who's bringing suit, there's, a, there's another suit coming up in Philadelphia soon, I hope. This is important because now I am asking the court to decide, okay, which set of principles are we going by here? Are we still interpreting civil rights law in the manner in which it was written, which does include white people, which says anybody of any skin color can be discriminated against, and if you are, you have a cause of action in court, and that's illegal? Or is the court going to decide, actually, we're going to go along with this woke stuff, and we're going to reinterpret civil rights law? Is that possible? I think it is. Why not? I And I, I remember asking my lawyer this early on, and she was like, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> but it could happen, and that is what is so scary, because that's what's at stake, is civil rights law and civil rights legislation. And that is why there are a lot of, there are a lot of people who marched along with Martin Luther King, a lot of non-white people and white people alike, who worked very hard to get this legislation and it is now at stake. This reminds me of something that happened at Smith after I left. Um, Bob Woodson of the Woodson Institute and the 1776 Project wrote a letter to President McCartney and told her that we the undersigned, and it was 44 black in scholars, intellectuals, and civil rights leaders, people who work, actually go in and work in black communities on the ground and see the issues that are affecting black Americans, wrote a letter to her saying, cut it out. Like, we know what we're talking about. We believe in civil rights law, and you are, this, this is not good what you're doing. And she wrote back essentially writing them off. Just over a year ago, I had Bob Woodson on the show. He's been on the show a number of times talking about exactly the letter that you're describing and how, you know, egregious they felt the Smith policies in response to, to this incident were. Yeah, signed by 44 black intellectual scholars and civil rights activists, people who actually work on the ground in black, poor black communities and who sensibly know what they're talking about. And they addressed Kathy McCartney and very point blank said, what you allowed to occur on your watch and what you helped support and promote this narrative that this had been a racial incident at the expense of working class staff members who happen to be white is egregious on your part. And we ask that you stop, that you stop this programming, stop teaching kids to do that, that this is okay, or to feel that everything they feel somehow has a racial tinge to it at the expense of working class people. And so that's something that I liked about that letter. It was, um, because Bob, as you know, is 
concerned, as we all should be, about communities that are not functioning and that, <laughs> unlike the Smith College community, that aren't very privileged and don't have a staff cooking meals and, and cleaning toilets. Um, but Kathy's response was quite dismissive, and I found that very telling, seeing as Smith College administration talks a lot about listening to black voices and um, that kind of thing, and then they get a letter from a prominent black man who's done a lot of work in civil rights, and they ignore it or just kind of write it off with a, a few-sentence response. I liked that that Bob took the initiative to do that. It, it meant a lot, and I think it meant a lot to Jackie and Mark, the two staff who were falsely accused of this. And so I'm very glad. I think, feel like they felt some kind of vindication in this, even though Kathy dismissed it. And I think this, this brings us to something interesting that I've thought about before, which is this notion of white privilege, because the faculty and the administration, especially the upper administration and the faculty and some of the lower administration are recruited from all around the world. And they're recruited with diversity in mind. And because they're recruited from all around the world, outside of Northampton certainly, they are more diverse, at least on the surface, if you look at skin tone. We're talking about purely about skin tone. The students are more diverse. The student, student body at Smith, last time I checked, is less than 50% white. So that's pretty diverse. And they are also recruited from all over the world. The staff who are mowing the lawns, cooking the meals, changing the light bulbs, they are not flown in from all around the world and, and interviewed and wined and dined. They are pretty much come from the local area. And the local area up there is pretty white. And this is also the lowest paid group on campus if we had to divide it into groups, faculty, students, staff. That's the lowest paid group. Also happens to be the whitest group. And yet we are teaching this concept at Smith College, the people who are getting paid the least, that they have the most privilege somehow. And it, the, there was a New York Times article by Michael Powell that came out right after I resigned. And in it, uh, one of the custodians who was falsely accused, this was the he wasn't even there when the incident happened, but the student accused him anyway. He said, I don't know about white privilege, but I do know about money privilege. <laughs> and that was the money line in that, in that article. Because that's really, that's something that is largely ignored by, for lack of a better word, the woke, is any discussion of class. There is lots of talk of intersectionality, which supposedly takes into account class. But if we're really talking about privilege here, we need to be talking about class. And I don't think Smith College wants to have that discussion. So as we finish up, what's next for Jody Shaw? Well, I am working on a book about my experience at Smith. I'm really excited about that. I, it's something creative, which I really enjoy doing. And I'm working on some musical projects. And I am raising my two young burgeoning men, trying to facilitate their moving into adulthood. And I'm also working to try to help people more in formalizing these networks because there's not a lot out there for people, aside from 
some good podcasts and, and some good films now. There's not a lot of what we talked about earlier about helping people to build the moral conviction they need to do what they need to do, whether that's, that might, not everybody might not want to file a lawsuit. Um, for some people, it's just the moral conviction to quit their job or the moral conviction to just say something to their supervisor. And I think, as I said before, that's, that's really important, these networks and finding other people, finding just one other person and then another person and another person. Because if you think about it, that's how the civil rights movement happened. And that's how any movement happens. And people feel a lot stronger when they can find each other. And so if I can help in any way facilitate that, I think that's really the only way we're going to be able to do anything is if we're able to find each other. Well, Jody Shaw, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jan. It's a pleasure. Smith College said it, quote, stands by its actions and offerings in support of DEI, meaning diversity, equity, and inclusion, and quote, that it will continue to defend against the latest version of Ms. Shaw's claims. Thank you all for joining Jody Shaw and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm-hmm.